I have never witnessed a queue so long in all the seven years that we've been operating. Many of these people are extremely vulnerable and are finding themselves living way below the poverty line. Last week, a video circulated of 800 people queuing for a food bank in Wembley. Volunteers at the London Community Kitchen said that the number was not uncommon. In Rishi Sunak's recent budget, he announced that the furlough scheme and the temporary £20 increase to universal credit would continue until the autumn. But even with these measures, it's obvious that huge numbers of people in the UK are still struggling. I've got no money coming in because it almost always happened, you know, so and I work part-time as well. So like, it's good that this food bank's here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to eat or live, you know. What do we do? Do we pay that gas bill, electric bill, or do we eat? People don't have jobs. People don't have the financial resources to maintain looking after their families. Furlough has held back a wave of unemployment, but what happens when the scheme ends? Will some jobs not come back after the pandemic? And what about the estimated 3 million people who've fallen through the cracks of the government's COVID support? There are models like in Germany, I know Ireland is actively considering looking at a combination of short-time working so people can share work, work part-time, and use the remainder of that working week for upskilling and retraining. We should be looking now at something much more radical for the long term, a minimum income guarantee so that when there are dips in the economy, people are supported and people are forced into well, what is described at the weekend is a doubling of destitution. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, how can we make sure everyone has enough to live on? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by returning friend of the pod, uh, Miata Fanbula, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Miata. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. And I'm also really happy to be joined by Sonali Joshi, co-founder of Excluded UK. Hi, Sonali. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us. All right. So we'll start with a bit of scene setting before we talk about the current moment that we're facing. So we'll begin by talking about people's living standards and how they've changed in the wake of the pandemic. So wages haven't really gone up for almost two decades. And of course, that can't all be blamed on COVID. So Miasa, could you tell us a bit more about this and, and where we were really before COVID hit? Yeah, and I think the background uh, to this is really important. So we had this very strange situation where essentially since the financial crisis, um, wages have pretty much stagnated, average wages have stagnated, and there's been a big income squeeze. And this has been sort of driven by a number of factors. The sort of economists won't call tell you productivity hasn't really budged, um, and so if productivity isn't budging, it's not impacting on things like wages. So that's part of the story. But I also think part of the story is the fact that in a world where worker and union power has been reduced, what we've seen is that where there have been gains that have been realised, they haven't been fairly distributed with workers. So productivity means that the gains have been kind of relatively small anyway, but even the gains that were made um, have tended to, you know, go more to say shareholders than they have uh, the people that are working in firms. So I think that's part of it as well. And what we've seen is that in particular sectors, companies have opted not to invest in their people. Um, what we see is a rise of insecure work. So you're sort of bringing in people on short term, 
you're not necessarily skilling them up, you don't have a long-term progression plan for them, and you're definitely not paying them enough. So all of these things have sort of come together and just meant that we've had this absolutely unprecedented period. And I can't emphasize it enough. Ten years are over in which average wages and living standards don't move. That's absolutely remarkable. And then what's scary is that it looks like that is about to continue. Mm. Okay, so there's three specific things that I want to kind of pull out of the context piece and ask you about. So one of them is the public sector, essentially pay freeze that's been um, in the news this week around nurses and the government's plans to raise NHS pay by just 1%. So let's start with that, Mia. So why do you think there's been such a furious response from unions and the public around that, but also what is driving the government's decision there? Yeah, so again, the background matters. Uh, We've had a public sector pay freeze throughout the period of austerity, some improvements and increases in the margins, but broadly a public sector pay freeze, so that real wages in the public sector have basically gone backwards. And the thing that the pandemic, once it hit, showed us was that the people that were doing absolutely vital work that we all rely on were the very people who were either in the public sector or our key workers. The very people that, by the way, we either weren't paying very much because we'd frozen their wages or we were paying very little uh, for all the reasons I talked about. So I think there was a sense that actually, you know, the term key worker became a thing that everyone understood. You know, the people that were going out there, you know, risking their health, risking their lives to do the vital things that we needed as a society to keep functioning through the pandemic were the heroes of this pandemic. And we come out the other side and, you know, so many commentators, so many, you know, pages written about the fact that the people doing the most valuable work are not paid enough are not rewarded enough and not valued enough. And we then come on the other side of this pandemic. And one of the big <laughs> decisions the government makes is to freeze public sector pay across the piece. Barely any move in the living wage, which impacts people that are paid low wages in key worker sectors. And then the one area you'd expect a big move would be, you know, our health service, our nurses and the 1% pay rise, which once you factor in inflation this year becomes a real pay cut, feels like a massive kick in the teeth. And it just feels completely inconsistent with everything we've learned this year. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense. I saw a tweet actually from a nurse friend of mine who who had said that the 1% pay increase wasn't even actually enough to cover their parking that they pay every day at the, to park at the hospital. You alluded to it there a little bit, but is this going to stand, I guess? Are the government going to have to do a U-turn? And what role might unions play in that? So we know union membership has been growing for the last few years and the pandemic has really given them a boost. So in this instance, the 1% pay rise for NHS, but also more broadly, are we going to see a kind of, in your opinion, a boost in, in union power that actually brings about some change in wages and wage stagnation? So I think the government will move on nurses because I think they misjudged where the public mood was. And so I think they recognise that it feels politically inconvenient and insensitive not to move on this. But where I don't think they will move is on the wider freeze on public sector workers. So, you know, even if we allow that, you know, we're going to pay our nurses more, which we have to, public sector workers, people who work in local authorities, people who work in social care, doing vital work, who have had their wages held back for a decade, there is no prospect at the moment of them seeing a pay increase. So I think the unions have a really important role to play. And, you know, I think the unions have been a really effective force for good and change over the course of the pandemic. Things like the furlough scheme, I don't think we would have achieved without the trade union movement being so effective at influencing the government. So I hope 
they will sort of mobilize and rally to kind of apply pressure. And again, I think the public mood is there. And, you know, a sense that actually the heroes, the key workers, the people that are doing that valuable work, we must come out of this and look after them and kind of reward them in a way that reflects the value that actually we as a society attribute to the stuff that they do. So I think there is a fight to be fought, but I see a quick U-turn on nurses' pay just because I think the political optics of it look awful for the government. But I think they will hold out on public sector pay, not least because they will keep going back to the fact that they think that the public sector has done better than the private sector, which is actually a myth. But they'll keep going back to that and hoping they can divide the public on this uh, that says, why should we protect people in the public sector when people in the private sector are being squeezed? So there will be more of a fight. But I think the union movement is in the best position that it could be in order to have that fight. Mm. All right. And so the final point then on the nitty gritty of particularly the budget is income tax. So uh, Rishi Sunak obviously announced that he would freeze income tax thresholds. And we've had quite a few questions about what that means. So could you yeah, just briefly explain that and how it will affect different kinds of people before we move on? Yeah. So, I mean, this is there was a lot of conversations and hoo-ha about corporation tax. But I mean, this is a bigger measure in terms of its impact on a much wider number of people. And essentially what we've had since 2010 is that the personal tax allowance, so that's the amount of income you earn uh, that's essentially tax free, has been increased year on year. And they're basically going to freeze it, which means that everyone will be affected across the board. And those that at the moment aren't paying tax suddenly will be paying tax. The thing that I would, however, say about the personal allowance is it's actually a really regressive tax. And so if you look at the changes that have been put in place and the increases since 2010, they've actually benefited the top 20 percent six times more than they've benefited the bottom 20 percent. So it's a tax that, in my view, needs to be looked at. The two issues I have with the government's approach is, one, I think they need to look at it in the round and think about whether there's a better way in which you can protect those at the lower end from tax rises whilst asking those at the top end to pay a bit more, because I think we have to do that. But my second issue with it is that they are doing it solely, solely to pay down the deficit. And for me, that just seems uh, like the wrong judgment call, the wrong priority, partly because we have huge pressures. There was nothing in that budget on social care. There was nothing to kind of invest in our public services. We know that many of our communities have been denuded of investment. All the things that we learned from this pandemic suggest that we need a period in which we are investing in people and communities. And so if you're going to raise taxes, you ought to be doing that in order to pay for those things in the long term and not, in my view, paying down a deficit that in part, there's no pressure to do that quickly because the Bank of England essentially owns 92% of that debt. But if we just get the economy going, a lot of that will be paid down anyway through increases in tax receipts. I mean, yeah, it certainly seems like a strange priority in a time like this. <laughs> and, you know, clearly an ideologically driven one, but it's really hard to wrap your head around. And I don't think that there is enough out there in the, I guess, kind of discourse around it explaining that this obviously not only is an austerity budget, but it is also one that is driven by very different priorities than I would say the bulk of the public. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And and you can't, it's hard to unpick this from a sense that it is driven by ideology um, and it Mm. is driven by a kind of fiscal conservatism because you know if you're looking at it rationally either as a member of the public thinking about the things you care about or you're looking at as an economist thinking about actually the pressures (laughs) on the exchequer and the things that any government needs to think about 
you wouldn't end up here. You wouldn't say, we're going to try and pay all of the borrowing that we've done over the course of the pandemic by the end of the parliament when we don't have to, but we're not going to invest in social care. We're not going to invest in the people that, you know, risk their lives through this pandemic to look after us. We're not going to invest in kids that have essentially had a year of lost education. We're not going to invest in communities we say that are left behind. It doesn't make any sense. And so it's hard not to feel like it is ideology above reason. Let's put it like that. Uh, indeed. All right. So that's the situation then for people still working and also, you know, some analysis of the budget. I want to move on to people who've lost work during the pandemic, starting with those who've been able to access furlough. So Miata, what was unemployment like before the pandemic, just to again, kind of set the scene? And what's the situation we're in now? Yeah. So before the pandemic, it was about 4%. Today, it's about 5%. That's about 1.7 million people that are unemployed. The government's economic watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility, is projecting that by the end of this year, it will be about 6.5%, which is about 2.2 million people unemployed. So essentially, we've seen a hike of about a million, which is pretty profound in a year. Um, it's not as bad as some of us, and indeed, the OBR itself was predicting at the start of the pandemic, where we thought we would be looking at unemployment levels of about 4 million people. So it's definitely better than that. And things like the furlough scheme have been absolutely critical. But what I would say is, I don't think we fully appreciate and understand the impact that the furlough has had. And so I think when it is removed, and if it's removed as a cliff edge, and there isn't a sort of something that comes in in the transition, that number of 6.5%, 2.2 million people might feel a bit optimistic. Yeah, so that's, I guess, my next question. What is going to happen when it ends? It's obviously been extended to the autumn, but do we think that there is a plan to do it in a phased way? Will it be a cliff edge? I mean, also, obviously, in Germany, they have a permanent furlough scheme. Is that something that's on the table here? Kind of what are your predictions? So I think the government, the Treasury and the Chancellor can't wait to get rid of it. It's been a huge success story, but it's been, from their perspective, desperately expensive. So 50 billion since it was first uh, launched and rising. And it's a level of intervention in the labour market that I think they feel desperately uncomfortable about. I think that's a wrong call. I think just cutting it off into the autumn and September would make no sense, partly because we know, and if we look at other countries that have opened up, that there will be certain sectors that are predicated on some sort of social interaction. So hospitality, leisure, parts of retail that are going to be smaller, that are going to struggle for a little while. Aviation is going to struggle. And so the idea that you can just pull off the scheme without there being, a, in my view, a big spike in unemployment, and you're then asking people to go into a labour market where we're not creating enough jobs, I think is the wrong call and will be really scarring in the long term. I think Germany has the right idea. You know, they set up their version of furlough coming out of the financial crisis. It was a success. It allowed the labour market to rebound, it allowed workers to kind of transition another job. So they kept it and they've sort of used it uh, at different moments in different sectors and then ramped it up in the context of the pandemic. So I think that's the approach that we should be taking. And what I would like to see as a successor to this is something a little bit akin to the job support scheme, the kind of final iteration of it, because there were lots of different versions of it until they got to the right one, which essentially says, actually, employers keep people on 
So if you have a job that two people could do, you keep those two people rather than laying off one of them, but you keep them on part time. The government subsidizes the other part of their time. So they work a shorter working week. And then in the time that they're not working, you retrain them and you reskill them and you help place them into sectors that are growing. And it needs to come up with a version of that, partly to manage the tail on of this pandemic and the economic impact. But also, we know there's a huge just transition challenge with climate change. We know certain sectors are going to have to decline. Other sectors are going to have to grow. So actually, why don't you use this as a policy instrument that becomes key to delivering a just transition uh, through the huge amounts of change that we're about to see over the course of the next five, 10 years? And that's certainly what we will be arguing and campaigning, and hopefully others will be as well. Um, But to just stop it would be to miss, I think, a huge opportunity to use a really effective policy measure to do some of the things that the government is still going to have to do come the back end of this year and going into future years. Mm, And hopefully we'll be able to uh, keep talking about that on the pod um, as and when it does happen. We shall see. But let's move on from talking about government support to talking about those people who weren't actually able to access any COVID support. So Sonali, you founded an organisation called Excluded UK. Can you explain why you created it and, and what it is? Yeah, so when the furlough and the self-employment income support schemes were announced in March of last year, I myself as a small limited company director and also a freelancer and someone who works with a team of 200 freelancers soon realised that there were going to be many of us who found ourselves outside of the scope of the two schemes. Being immersed in the creative industries and the uncertainty that hang over us from very early on, and that still does. Um, I launched into lobbying for my own sectors first. And within no time, I came upon a couple of other limited company directors, small business owners, also affected some of us in similar ways, some of us in different ways. And we realized the vast scale of the issue. And so we came together and we formed Excluded UK. At that point, there were a number of small campaign groups that were beginning to emerge and small but fast growing, which is um, sort of testament to the, the scale of the issue. And we felt that by bringing all of the different exclusions together, because we soon realized that there were a good number of exclusions, we could amplify the voice of those excluded more broadly. And so we founded Excluded UK in May of last year. We built it upon a principle of wanting to collaborate very strongly across unions, industry bodies, other organisations and campaign groups, realising that the scale of the issue was that vast. And in our initial work, we set about trying to establish uh, how many people were affected. And this is how the figure of 3 million came into being. It's simply founded on figures that are readily available from ONS and HMRC. Actually, we do now think from more recent data that's come to light that the figure is probably more than 3 million. And in fact, uh, Standard Life Foundation conducted a survey and some extensive research in January, and they came up with a figure of 3.8 million. We certainly know that the figure is going to be over 3 million. And what we saw was a whole number of exclusions across the two schemes, clearly indicating that the schemes fell far short of providing adequate financial support for all of those who were in need. And that's so that's the furlough scheme and the self-employed scheme. Those are the two schemes. That's right. Yes. Okay. And and of course, as the Chancellor and government ministers have frequently said, uh, universal credit, the welfare system was 
always there as a backup. But what we've seen is that welfare has not provided the safety net that it should have done. Hence, we had these two schemes and welfare that just did not interlock. And the result was 3 million people, we say, excluded from meaningful support because some people have accessed some support of some sort, but not necessarily what we would deem to be meaningful. You know, a limited company director who can only furlough on the minimal part of their actual salary, that being their PAYE salary, but not the total of their actual salary or you know, new businesses that might access a tiny bit of support um, from the self-employment scheme if self-employed, but actually not very much. There's a whole host of situations whereby a small amount of support might have been accessed, but really nothing meaningful. And the same for those who couldn't access either scheme, but could still access universal credit. But we don't deem that to be meaningful. Sorry, Sonali, just before you carry on, could you just help me understand a bit more the just the types of people who were excluded, the type of work they were doing? Just give me a really clear picture of yeah, who was excluded from COVID support and why. Sure. So the exclusions cover all employment statuses. So that's people in employment, employees or people in between um, jobs or those made redundant, the self-employed, including freelancers, sole traders, small limited companies, and then the situation of PAYE freelancers who kind of fall between both categories. And these are people who come from a wide variety of industries and professions and also people across different socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's really a broad section of society. That said, I would also say that from the data that we've collected and from many of the testimonies that we've heard, these are people who were largely self-sufficient prior to the crisis. Okay, that makes sense. So an example of a person might be someone who has recently gone freelance, so they don't have enough, they haven't freelanced for long enough to qualify for the self-employed scheme, but then also they can't be furloughed by anyone. Those type of people, they're the people who are falling through the cracks that we're talking about who actually can't get any help. I mean, essentially, those exclusions that apply to the self-employment scheme are people who whose trading profits were over £50,000, mm-hmm. people who's, who didn't have the minimum 50% trading profits. And this is one of the real anomalies in the scheme because it's not just people who were mixing PAYE and self-employment over the three-year period. It's also people who had received redundancy payments, pension payments, bereavement payments, carers allowance. Uh, there's a whole host of other forms of income, broadly speaking, that have been brought into that equation to determine the 50% trading profit. So we've, we've seen that as a real injustice. Then, of course, the newly self-employed people new to business who therefore had very low or no to profits in their early years of setting up. That's a self-employment scheme. Then on the furlough side, it's new starters who were starting a new job and they missed the RTI cutoff date. Um, employees who were denied furlough for all manner of different reasons. This has affected people who have had to shield and also pregnant women and um, new parents in a maternity or parental leave period. So that's largely speaking how people have been uh, excluded. Mm. Okay, that's a really thorough picture of the landscape that helps me understand. Thank you. So what would Excluded UK like to see the government do to fix their mistakes? How can we make sure that excluded people are are included going forward? Well, now that we're approaching practically a year since uh, lockdown came into effect and the schemes were implemented or certainly announced, we see obviously one year's worth of decimated incomes, decimated businesses and livelihoods. And the overriding call 
from that community of people who've been excluded is parity, parity and support with those who have been supported through the furlough scheme and through the self-employment income support scheme and for the duration of those schemes. Of course, being realistic, it certainly doesn't look like that's going to happen. That doesn't change the fact that that is what we would like to see. And that's what we know is the overriding call from those who've been affected. Obviously, with uh, the budget last week, we saw 2019-2020 tax returns um, coming into the picture, which we had been campaigning for vigorously from the very beginning. And we obviously welcomed that. But it's too little too late. It's really not that enough of a gesture to really have made a significant change because, firstly, the number of people who are now included going forwards is not a huge number within that plus three million figure. And also, we're talking about the newly self-employed who knew in business, you've got very high overheads and set of costs. So those who now are covered, who are amongst the group of the newly self-employed, may not necessarily be accessing very much. So whilst we welcomed that one gesture through the budget last week, it hasn't really gone a significant way at all towards including the vast number of people out there who who have been excluded. And like I say, parity is is what people would like to see. Mm, I mean, like so many measures in the budget, it's clearly not enough, is it? Thanks so much, Sonali, for taking us through that. That was really useful. Um, So let's talk a bit more then about some of those gaps. Miata, I, I know that we've talked previously about universal credit and some of its alternatives on the pod, but just to recap for listeners, for people who've lost work and can't access any government, COVID support, the idea is that they have this thing to fall back on, universal credit. So Miata, is universal credit enough for people to live on? Is that the solution to this problem? So it's not. And I think if there was any debate about this, I think the last year has proven that to be the case. Um, You know, it is essentially at its most basic 90 quid a week. And yes, there are uh, housing allowances and other things that will kind of augment it. But when you compare our out of work um, support and payment as a proportion of the amount that, you know, the average person gets working, it is about amongst the sort of third lowest in the OECD. It is the lowest that it has ever been uh, since the creation of the welfare state. And the last decade in which we've essentially taken huge chunks out of social security haven't helped that and have massively exacerbated it. So it's not enough. It's woefully inadequate. It has been woefully inadequate for a really long time. But I think uh, a lot more people having to interact with the social security system and you know having to raise families with the social security system I think it's becoming quite clear and visibly so that it it just doesn't do the job it's supposed to, which is, you know, it's supposed to be a safety net. It's supposed to be there to catch people to make sure that they have enough to live on. And when we've got queues of people having to rely on food banks, you know, when we have people who are having to choose between feeding their families and heating their homes, it is clearly not enough. I've seen a lot about the £20 uplift to universal credit being extended until autumn. Is that a good thing? What does that tell us? Well, it's better than if they just cut it off <laughs> next month, which is what was being threatened. So it's definitely a good thing. Um, and, you know, the £20 uplift um, has been a huge lifeline. I think the pandemic and the income squeeze would have been much, much harder without it. But it isn't enough. The two things I say is, on the one hand, if you like, the amount that's been put back into the welfare system through the £20 uplift only represents half of the cuts that have been made to welfare since 2010. So we haven't even reversed the erosion that we've seen over the course of the last decade. 
The second thing is, it's just the number of people who are impacted, you know, so the work that we've done at NEF suggests that we're now in a place where, you know, there are about 20 million people who are living below what we call the minimum income standard. And that's basically the level of income that you need to stay afloat to fraud bread and butter things. That number we think is going to rise by about 2 million over the course of the pandemic going into sort of April this year. You know, that means we're entering a position where a third of the people in this country are literally struggling to stay afloat, are literally struggling to afford the things that should be bread and butter things for a kind of a decent quality of life. And that cannot be right. And that suggests that our safety net is just not working, which is why, for me, this should be at the top of the entry of any government. Um, and if it's not, a lot of pressure needs to be applied to ensure that it is at the top of the entry of any government. So yeah, in terms of applying that pressure, last week polling found that the majority of people surveyed now think that benefits are actually too low or about right, which is a sharp reversal of attitudes over the past decade. So with the number of people on universal credit doubling over the last year, as we've discussed, is the tide starting to turn on on public opinion and will that lead to government pressure? So I think the tide is starting to turn on public opinion. Um, And, you know, we had a really protracted period of time where there was a lot of toxic bile thrown at social security, the scroungers, the unworthy, all of that narrative, I think, you know, eroded the sense that actually this is about an insurance policy that we can all benefit from. And at times, you know, different people will need to rely on it. And that's okay. That's what it's there to catch us all. And that sense that it was something for all of us, I think, got lost um, in some of the kind of toxic debate. And I think the thing that the pandemic has done is reminded people that actually for things that could be completely out of our control. There will be times when we need that insurance policy. And therefore, we've got to make sure that it's enough that us individually, but our fellow citizens have enough to live on. So I think that has been a kind of big driver that's focused, if you like, public opinion around the need to make this thing do what it's supposed to do, which is to provide people enough to live on, live dignified, decent lives. Um, And I think the government is out of step with the public now. And my sense is that as we get through the autumn and you know who knows where we'll be on the kind of the public health side of the pandemic but the economics will start to bite Uh, we might see a kind of spike in growth but the squeeze in income that is due to be in place for the next three four years according to the government's economic watchdog will really start to bite on people who have very little resilience very little cushion because they have endured well over a decade in which their incomes have been squeezed And I think how that's going to play out in our society and what people will see and how it will impact on their communities, their friends, their families will make it quite politically difficult for the government. And, you know, and then for those of us that are in the space of, you know, using our resources and assets to focus the government's mind and try and influence them, I think, you know, we need to work with others to say this is not good enough. We need to use the voices of those that are living this to say this is not good enough. We can do better. Sixth richest country in the world. We should not have people who can't afford to feed their children. And use where I think the public are as a way to force the government to act on this thing. Well, I mean, I think that's why it's so brilliant that groups like Excluded UK exist. It only matters what the public's thinking. If you have fantastic campaigning groups out there that are able to take those attitudes and translate them into into political pressure. So um, I think it's really brilliant. Sonali, could you speak to kind of some of the experiences of excluded UK members who are relying on universal credit, perhaps for the first time? You know, what has that been like? Well, 
The first thing I would say is that the majority of people we've spoken to and through surveys that we've done have not been able to access universal credit. The figure is, I believe, about 72% have not been able to access universal credit. And there are a few different reasons for that. And it goes back to the point that I made earlier, that we see that these are people who have largely been self-sufficient before. So many of these people have never, ever even applied for benefits before. So they often can't access universal credit because um, they've got savings, because they might be self-employed and they've put away savings to pay for their tax bill, or their partner works. But of course, some people have been able to access universal credit. But broadly speaking, we've seen you know, some really profound impacts on how people have been affected by not being included in the support schemes. In the most recent survey we conducted, uh, which was in early February, 41% of respondents are now living in relative poverty. And that translates into things like people having already depleted their savings over the last year, people having to rely on family or friends for financial support, people losing their homes, people selling belongings, even things like people having to reduce the hours they heat their home or people having skipped meals. It's really quite staggering, particularly when we consider that these are people who have and are contributing so much to their communities through small businesses or in their employed work, people who are the fabric of our communities but have been uh, left behind. And just to add, broadly speaking, looking back over the last year, what we've seen is that this crisis has really brought into sharp focus a number of issues, things like a lack of understanding on the government's part on what it really means to be a freelancer, what it means to be self-employed, a small limited company, the precarious nature of self-employment or zero-hour contracts, but also other inequalities, uh, working conditions for freelancers and gender inequality is also something that has really been highlighted through what we've observed and experienced over the last year. And we certainly feel that within that, there's definitely an argument for systemic change more broadly. Definitely. I mean, that's coming through very clearly. So just on that note, as a kind of final thoughts from both of you, starting with you, Miata, do you think that the pandemic has created an income crisis or is it just actually intensifying things that were already happening? I think with many things in this pandemic, it's intensifying things that are already happening. Uh, so the income crisis has been playing out since the financial crisis. And I think it's just got far more intense over the course of the pandemic in the same way that many inequalities existed before the pandemic and the pandemic has intensified it. And, you know, our desperate hope is that that focuses the minds enough that there is a recognition that change must come and it must come quickly. But I think that's a fight that we still need to win. And just to hone in on something specific, I know Neff's been campaigning for something called a living income. Miata, could you tell us what that is? And is that something that would continue after the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, there are two sides of this. In the short term, you know, we've been saying that in part to respond to people who have been excluded from government support, but also to reflect the fact that actually for many people, even those that are receiving universal credit, it's just not enough. We've been calling for a minimum income guarantee. So £227 that would be available immediately for anyone that needs it in order to make sure that people can weather the economic storm from the pandemic. In the long term, for us, the living income is, you know, a basic idea that actually for everyone, people should have enough income 
to live a dignified, decent life. It's not radical. It's not revolutionary. And the way that we think we achieve it is in part in the labor market, trying to stamp out low pay and getting to a real living wage at a much higher rate. But then secondly, it's about bolstering our social security system so that we build in a minimum income floor. We say that there's a level of income that it doesn't matter whether you're in work or you're out of work, you will never fall below that allows you to afford the basics for a decent quality of life. For me, it's the kind of bread and butter thing. uh, And the fact that it feels like something aspirational, I think, says a lot about where our society and our economy is. Thanks, Miat. And just to go back to you on the final thought there, Sonali, how do you think something like that, I mean, I guess if something like a living income existed, do you think that that would speak to the crisis that you and Excluded UK are responding to? Um, and what else might you like to see implemented to make sure that no one misses out in the future on the government support required for a decent life? It would have at least offered something to those who've been left with no income at all, because we know that there have been many who've gone through the last 12 months with no income. And that we see as a clear social injustice. And absolutely, we don't want to see this repeated ever again. And that, of course, is part of our campaigning. So whilst I say the overriding call is parity, we also know that there's nothing from Treasury or from the government's part to suggest that shift is going to happen. It doesn't mean that we we change that focus, but we also want to embrace any opportunities to improve the situation for those who have been left without an income or on next to no income over the last 12 months. And obviously looking forwards, we want to help people rebuild and something to at least bridge a gap would be something that certainly hasn't been there. Brilliant. Thank you both so much for joining me. I mean, it's really inspiring to hear about the incredible work that's going on, not just with Excluded UK um, and with NEF, but obviously in the, the kind of wider movement around this stuff. And it's certainly necessary. So, but sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. So, um, Miata Fambula, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? I heard you were on Question Time. <laughs> what's on question time it's always um a relief when you get to the other side of it let's put it like that um, <laughs> if anyone wants to find out about us go to neweconomics.org and you can see uh, the amazing work that the team are doing uh, the campaigns that we're running as well brilliant thanks so much and sonali joshi thank you again um so much for being with us if people want to find out more about excluded uk and, and what you're doing how can they do that uh, we have a very active Facebook group and also Twitter, where we are most of the time with so much of our activity. But uh, we also have a website, which is excludeduk.org. Wonderful. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast, lovely listener. If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.